Welcome to Unframed, the podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I am your host, Anthea Pockroy. In this episode, I chat with Carly Whitaker about her artistic, curatorial and research practices. This is the sixth episode in a series on Unframed called Artists in Isolation, which profiles South African artists during the lockdown period of the COVID-19 pandemic. We are living through unprecedented times where we are needing to find new ways of connecting with each other and the broader arts community, being inspired and of creating more platforms for artists. Carly Whitaker is an artist, curator, researcher and lecturer based in Johannesburg. She holds a BA Fine Arts and an MA in Digital Interactive from Wits University. She has participated in numerous exhibitions at art spaces in Johannesburg, Freiburg, Casablanca, Miami and Sao Paulo. Her curatorial projects include Floating Reverie, an online digital residency program, which has been running for over five years, and Blue Ocean, an online digital project space. She is interested in the positioning of this as artistic research and investigating how artists can develop a practice online. Through her own practice, she engages in a constant exploration of how we communicate through media and the ways we use technology to create dialogues, form connections between ourselves and the digital space. Carly is currently extending her practice and research into new areas with her PhD at the University of Reading in the UK, with a focus on curating and networked methodologies in South Africa. Enjoy listening to my conversation with Carly Whittaker. Welcome to my very special friend, Carly Whittaker, a very talented artist, and I'm very very honored to have you on my show, my darling Carly. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, and Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's going to be interesting because Carly and I speak on the phone like every day, but we've never had an official interview with each other. So let's see how we cope with that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, while I was doing research for this interview, it, it was actually really cool to put on like an objective hat and see what you've done and think of questions to ask you. And yeah, it was, it was quite enjoyable and quite inspiring to kind of take a step back and look at you as like a more objective person and artist and curator and researcher and just all around talented, ambitious person. I'd like to begin by asking you to tell our listeners who is Carly Whitaker. <laughs> Thanks, Anth. I am an artist, a researcher, a curator, and a lecturer as well. And I focus on the digital medium, using that as my focus, both in terms of how it manifests socially, culturally, and as a medium itself. Great. So where can our listeners see your work while they listen to this interview? Some stuff is on my website. It's not 100% updated, but I, I do try. And then on Instagram. So my website is carlywhitaker.co.za and my Instagram is at miss underscore Carly Jane. So Carly, how are you doing during lockdown and how is this impacting the way that you work? Are you being productive? Are you making work, <laughs> are you making work during this time? It's been hard. I think as an artist, it's been a completely different experience to like Carly who works and Carly who lectures. So mm. even though those two roles 
merge and flow into each other for me within my practice and what I lecture or teach and like my educational focus. It's it's hard sometimes to separate them, but in terms of lockdown, I think work sort of went into full overdrive. So there were lots of meetings online and lecturing online and teaching online, which was really, really intense. And I think there was this sort of general mentality that like everyone should be super productive and do Mm. all this like amazing work as artists in lockdown. I totally didn't have (laughs) the space for any of that. Yeah. What I did try and do, which was really nice in the beginning, but then it sort of ran away with me. There's a artist in Cape Town. Her name is Alice Teutsch. And she did a 21 day, when lockdown was still supposed to be 21 days, a 21 day art challenge, which was really nice. And I used that as a guide to make work. So Mm. I sort of set myself 45 minutes or an hour a day, depending on how I was doing. And some days I would do more than one. Some days I would skip it. But it gave me a nice framework to make stuff and to not be precious about work and my practice. Yeah, It gave me the opportunity to reflect on a lot of work that I'd made that perhaps I hadn't put out into the public space or that it only existed in a certain way. And I got to reimagine it for Instagram, which was really nice. Yeah. So yeah, that was that's kind of been my practice. But after the 21 days, sure, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't even do the full 21, <laughs> to be honest. I was impressed that you even <laughs> attempted it. It crossed my mind and it just didn't even happen for day one. I think what was nice, and I think you might have even have said this to me, is that she's a painter and, and the, the themes per day were sort of more traditional object or portrait focus, still lives, exactly. Which for an artist like me, who's focused on the digital medium and like internet culture is different. So I got to like reinterpret those themes based on my framework and my practice, which was quite cool. Carls, tell me a little bit about your artistic journey. How have you gotten to where you are today? What got you here? I started studying fine art, as you know. Um, we went to university uh, together. Carly, <laughs> Carly was a year below me at Wits. Yeah. So I studied fine art for four years at Wits, which was interesting because I think I initially started actually not wanting to be an artist. I wanted to actually <laughs> go into fashion design. And then I think I, w- I remember in third year, I remember like the th- your third year and your fourth year, you have to sort of cultivate well, they try and encourage you to cultivate a practice. And I think out of the four years, my third year was maybe the most successful because I kind of grew into it. And I was like, I could maybe do this. Like yeah. this could this could be a thing. That was exactly my experience. I went in really? wanting to be a fashion photographer. <laughs> and, <laughs> then, so and then, you know, obviously the lecturers turn you against anything that's commercial <laughs> and push you to be a bit more conceptual. And also in my third year, I flourished. That's Interesting, yeah. similar experiences. Yeah, and I think because I'm a lecturer, I'm, I'm so aware of content structure and curriculum structure. And when I look back at how that course was structured, it's so interesting, you know, the way in which it evolved. You know, it was very sort of open-ended in first year and explorative. And then second year was very like traditional skills-based. And then third and fourth year are quite free again, yeah. know, open-ended, but not focused on briefs the way the first year was. And in third and fourth year, I started picking up some modules or courses or subjects in the digital arts division. 
So like the World Wide Web, or the introduction to World Wide Web as a creative medium and data visualization, and there were some animation modules as well. But I think that's really when I began to see the potential of the digital medium and what it could do. And then after I graduated, I went overseas for a bit, and then I came back and did my master's in digital interactive media at FITS in the digital arts division, which is a coursework master's, which was just like the most amazing thing I've ever done. And that's just, yeah, it was the, it was so wonderful to be exposed to like physical computing and making work that could exist online properly. And I think that's really where my practice flourished. And afterwards I sort of, when I finished, I really decided that this was, this was a thing I was going to do. I also freelanced a bit as a interaction designer because obviously I've now gained a lot of hardcore industry skills, which yeah. fine art obviously doesn't always equip you with. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I was part-time lecturing and freelancing and trying to develop my practice. And then I got more into the lecturing and then, yeah. So firstly, I'd like to ask you about the terms, digital art, internet art, post-internet art, What do they all mean and how are they different? So digital art is, and there are many debates and um, there's lots of writing, research and theorists who explore and critics who explore what all those terms mean. But I think, you know, things like new media art as well tend to become these catch-all phrases for work that exists literally then in new media. But I suppose... There's a lot of media that's not new anymore. So like why call it new media? Like photography. Yeah, like that's or video art. I don't know. There's like multimedia. I mean, there's so many different terms. But digital art for me and the way in which my practice exists, the way in which my research exists and where it's situated is anything, any work or any practice that is like rooted in the medium of the digital that relies solely on the digital to exist. It's not necessarily a product because of the digital. So for example, like a digital photograph or a photograph that's been manipulated or like digital painting, like a lot of people say that that is digital art. For me, that's more just contemporary art potentially because it's not something that exists, you know, it'll still get printed and still be displayed. It's not something that exists and relies solely on the digital space and internet art is art that exists on the internet that is stored and is produced through the internet and you can only access online Mm -hmm. so that I think that the, the idea of access and where you access the work is quite interesting in terms of the digital space and defining that and then post internet um is a contentious term recently been doing a lot of research on it so I hope I can articulate myself properly but it's work that exists for all intents and purposes because of the internet and to a large extent a lot of contemporary work now does Mm. because we can't imagine our lives without the internet and it is this entity this networked culture which is so pervasive and so um, present in our lives And I think like the current situation has definitely highlighted that for so many people yeah, on personal, professional and private levels. Yeah. So I think post-internet is work that just exists because of 
not necessarily on the internet. So it can manifest in a variety of mediums, not necessarily digital art. Yes. But it, okay, so yes. it's more about the, the subject matter or the the context from which it's arisen. Yes. Can you describe the digital arts landscape in South Africa to me? I can try. I think it's an emerging field and there's quite a small group of practitioners, but it's definitely growing. I think in my master's, I did a lot of research then, which was in 2011, 2012, on what the digital art practice was in South Africa and and how it looked and, and trying to figure out how you know, on a personal level, where I could situate myself as a digital artist. And I think a lot of the efforts I've made since then and a lot of the research I've done is is continuously about figuring out what it is and what are the practices of the digital artists in South Africa. I think there's something unique about the way in which the work manifests. So I think that what the digital medium affords artists who are located in or within or around South Africa is an opportunity to challenge the status quo in a way, to challenge the way in which we perceive art and artistic practices, the way audiences receive art and understand art. It also gives artists an opportunity to engage with politics in a very different way. Even though the digital space has its limitations and there are definitely problems within it, it does afford artists an opportunity to explore and be more experimental, potentially. Mm. And do you think that this, what you've just described, is is happening in South Africa specifically? Yes, yes, I do think so. I think, like I said, I think it's a, there's a small group of emerging practitioners and a small group of established practitioners. Mm. But I definitely think it's happening. So who are some interesting established and emerging digital artists that you are looking at or that you're interested in? So some of the sort of established um, artists are Cuss Group, NTU, Tabitha Rosaire when she was living here. I know she does come and go as well. Bukhosi Zekakuni. And then some emerging artists to look out for would probably be Natalie Penning or Daniel Rautenbach, Yolendri Passini. Yeah, I think there's there's a range of artists. And I think what's really nice at the moment is the field is sort of ripe for practitioners to emerge. Yeah. How does one become a digital artist? Do you need to know how to code? I mean, you can, but I don't think it's necessarily a requirement. I think it's definitely helpful. It's definitely empowering. It'll also maybe help you earn some money on the side. Yeah. But I think that you just need to have a curiosity for the medium and want to explore it further. And know the Adobe suite. Well, or not yeah, even. there are lots of open source options that are available to artists these days. And then if you're an artist, definitely being able to use things like Photoshop and Illustrator help. But I don't think it's necessarily a, a prerequisite for being a digital artist. And um, how does one sell digital art or is a physical manifestation always necessary to do so? So I think in South Africa, it's it's different than it is in a lot of other countries in Europe and in America, for instance, or North America rather. But selling digital art is a challenge generally. Mm. Established artists overseas are definitely more successful at it. There isn't much of a collecting, a digital art collecting community here. 
the work that I have sold has primarily been um, work that has been a physical manifestation of something that I've made digitally, mm. which is often how I work in my practice. I think there are lots of ways in which people do sell stuff that's, for example, online. So you can often buy a certificate of authenticity and some artists sell contracts that come with their work where as the buyer or as the collector, you need to ensure that the work is either maintained and updated with the relevant code or if there's a problem, then the artist can sometimes help assist to a certain extent. The same rules of like editions apply as well. Not rules, but like editions, conventions, yeah exist with digital work so yeah Mm. you have worked as a curator at the Fagugezi Digital Art Festival and you've interacted with digital artists across Africa I'm curious to know what you're seeing emerge in digital art on the rest of the continent so I think what is emerging across the continent and I mean I can't speak for the entire continent because there's no ways that one voice could and I think there are so many nuances with the way in which the practice emerges and the digital medium is used and embraced or explored. But I think what is emerging is local specificity and local concerns. And I think that's what's interesting. I think there's so much opportunity to explore what is unique to our own contexts and unique to our own way of understanding the digital medium. And I think the diversity within Africa and the complexities and the nuances that are in the different politics within Africa makes the way in which the digital medium is explored different. And I think there's a problem with the term post-internet. The way it's written about often references a sort of Western, American, European understanding of what the internet is and how technology has emerged and doesn't necessarily engage. It's sort of this catch-all phrase that is used for a type of work. And it has a tendency, well, it had a tendency when it was first used to sort of exclude the way in which it could be applied to a unique local context. And I think, you know, there's definitely an emergence of that happening across the continent, but obviously differently in each unique context. So you have really fully, fully immersed yourself into this digital art landscape. You started Floating Reverie in 2014. And, you know, not only are you practicing as an artist in the digital space, but you found that there was a need to create a platform for other people wanting to work in this medium because at that point it it was very scarce. So tell me a little bit about Floating Reverie. What were you trying to achieve with this project? So initially Floating Reverie came about because I had just graduated and, you know, there was a lack of clarity around how how do I be a digital artist? How do I be an artist and how do I be a digital artist in South Africa? You know, and there was this sort of like this romanticized idea of what a residency was. And there were a few people who were going on them and applying for them. And, you know, it seemed like a great opportunity to be able to grow your practice. And it seemed like a great opportunity to have some sort of validation about your own practice. But there weren't a lot of opportunities for digital artists, both in South Africa and globally. 
So I'd been playing with sort of procedural limitations and constraints in my own practice. And I sort of came up with this idea of floating reverie where you make work for two weeks and you do the same thing on a daily basis. So the idea that your practice is iterative and explorative and adapts and changes through each iteration. And through various conversations with friends and colleagues and peers, Nicola Kritzinger was extremely supportive in my development of the idea and helped me set everything up. But Floating Reverie came about as this great way to provide an opportunity for artists working in the similar field not necessarily located in South Africa or in Johannesburg. So Floating Reverie is an online digital residency program where artists are invited to participate once a month for two weeks. And for to those two weeks, they engage with the sort of mini brief, which is you have two weeks, 14 days, however many hours, you know, what are you going to do with it? And this sort of idea that you can produce the same thing, as I said, like daily and iteratively building up your process. So what is your role as a curator in Floating Reverie? So I think my role has changed and it's been quite dynamic over the past five, nearly six years that it's been running. Initially, it was very much about setting Floating Reverie up, the program up, identifying artists, which I initially looked to my own immediate network for, and then started asking artists to refer other artists so that the network Mm. of artists grew. So in that sense, the curatorial framework shifts. There's still a review process where I assess someone's practice and their general way of making and engaging and their concepts to see if it would be a good fit for them before inviting them. So my role extends from that to marketing, engaging with the artists directly, dealing with the artists. So Floating Reverie consists of two components, the two-week online residency program and then the post-digital exhibitions, which manifest at sort of the end of the year, where artists from that residency year are invited back to participate in a sort of exhibition that I call them instances because it's an instance of the residency where the artists take what they have done throughout their two-week residency and they reimagine and re-engage with it within a physical context. So presenting that as a reflection on their process and what they've done. I was actually going to ask this question later on with regards to your practice, but I think it's quite pertinent with what you've just said around taking the digital medium into physical space. What is the relationship between the two, do you think? And how do they translate? How does the artist kind of negotiate that translation? And how do you think the audiences read these two spaces? So I think it's it's easier for the artists than it is for the audiences, but I'll speak to the to the artists first. So I think for the artists, a motivation behind having the two components as part of the program was to facilitate and extend opportunity and to facilitate and extend their practice. Because even though something exists online, not everyone knows how to engage with it or has an understanding of it Mm. in that context. And, And having the artists have the opportunity to manifest that physically extends their way of thinking from the digital space into a physical space. And a lot of the physical manifestations 
are digital and are screen-based or are prints of something or like an analog interpretation. So in that sense, the post-digital sort of are, in a sense, like this post-medium expression of what it is that they have done online. And then I think for the audiences, it's a way of accessing what it is the artists have done. I think connecting the physical manifestation and the and the digital, the residency is quite hard. And I think that's been a curatorial challenge that I've had to explore and look at different options through each different post-digital instance that has happened over the years. Do you think the audiences are able to consume an exhibition, you know, walking into a space that is possibly a white cube with objects on the wall or the floor? Do you think that's easier for current audiences to kind of read as art than scrolling on like a Tumblr feed? I think that there are definitely conventions that make it easier to access as art mm. as a label mm. but I don't I, I don't know if I could categorically state that because I think the audience has changed in the last six years yeah in terms of who has access to what and who's exposed to what type of information and what type of websites I definitely think there is a younger generation of art makers and practitioners where it is definitely more accessible on Tumblr than mm. it is within a gallery or more accessible on Instagram. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's a hard thing to say absolutely whether it does yeah. or doesn't. But I think they're conventions which make it easier for some. Yeah. It does definitely feel like a generational gap, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. Potentially. Mm. What are some of the insights or trends that are coming out of the work that's produced during Floating Reverie residencies, the two-week residencies? There's definitely been trends within each year. So oh, okay. recently I did the Floating Reverie five years book, which was a reflection on the past five years, which launched at the end of last year. It gave me an opportunity to look back at the artists that had participated, their residencies, the post-digitals, and really like review and reflect on what had happened. So there was definitely a trend across all five years to move away from Tumblr. Tumblr was like the initial choice to more Instagram-based residencies. And I think that had to do with the death of Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. And I also think and their privacy or their content regulations. And then I think obviously Instagram became more accessible and more popular. And so then as a result, the artists started to gravitate towards Instagram and using both posts and stories interchangeably, but very much like positioning the content quite differently. And there've also been some trends towards artists making their own websites, which have been quite unique then to their concept. And that's been really exciting, like seeing how different artists explore the digital medium through their own capabilities mm. um, not just through the platform and its capabilities yeah and seeing how those two can also work together so I think there's been a lot of there have been a lot of combinations of platforms whether it's own sites or tumblr or instagram or whatever and how artists have chosen to weave those two together would you say there are any unique themes that emerge from the art being produced in the residencies so I definitely think there's a critiquing of the space and of the medium, 
whilst still engaging with socio-political issues. And I think that's where the post-internet, internet art, digital art, contemporary art labels become difficult to attribute to a type of work because they're all about very specific contemporary issues that we all face. And, and you know, it's very difficult to also, especially now, like separate what we are going through from the digital medium and from the space. So we've just spoken about your role as a curator. And in my mind, like you're kind of creating a chronicle or an archive of digital art. So you're a researcher. I know that you're doing your PhD at the moment. You're also an artist. So tell me about the relationship between these various positions, these various roles, and how do you reconcile your role as a curator versus an artist? So I think I used to think that those were all separate, that I had to be an artist and now I must make work and I must make art. And then when I'm a curator, I'm doing this. And then I'm a researcher. And then I'm a lecturer. Mm. But I think over the years and definitely over the last year, it's become quite clear to me that those roles are not separate and that they are interchangeable and that I don't need to reconcile one with the other or mm. be one and not the other, that I can be all of them and, and that they can feed into each other. I think, you know, the artist curator, the researcher curators are terms that a lot of people have used to describe their practice. And I suppose using them to inform each other is, is where actually where the magic can happen. Tell me a little bit more about your artistic practice what are your concerns, your subject matter? What do, what do your digital works look like? I, in recent years, have explored how relationships manifest online, both through people meeting online, connecting online, and how our relationships can develop and form through the digital medium, but also our relationship with the digital medium. I'm interested in how those boundaries of lines as to when you are connecting or falling in love with someone through a screen or through a device can translate into a physical space. So again, there's that like the relationship between the screen, the digital space and the physical space. I'm interested in the dynamics that exist within the and the politics around technology and the power relations that then set up within relationships online. And my work tends to look quite romantic as you'll know and like it uses the medium to explore its aesthetic and tends to romanticize it to a certain extent whilst trying to critique our roles and its role in our lives. How would you describe the visual aesthetic of your work? Like what might we see? I, I think it's a, it's a hard thing to articulate because for me it feels like so natural and obvious as to what the aesthetic is. I think the aesthetic references, it references the medium quite directly. So interface elements and components I often use and explore in terms of like constructing very specific narratives within an artwork. It's a little bit kitsch and romantic and like, I don't want to use the word digital folklore but there's something about that in yeah. there. There's also sometimes a reference to slight vaporwave and glitch aesthetic. What's, sorry, vaporwave? Yeah. What's that? Vaporwave is a movement that, ref, like a, a retro 90s 
vibe of like pixel art and okay. it's also a music genre. And, but yeah, I mean, there's like a slight reference to it. Well, yes. I think it's slight. Some people might think it's more yes. overt than it is. Yeah. But so they take the forms of gifts and videos and yeah, and prints and text. Text, yeah. There's a lot of text in my work referencing sort of sometimes pop culture songs or sayings that you know that is in pop culture or my friends have said what we say and reference the way we write the way we write yeah at the moment there's a lot of gifts and a lot of videos which can culminate in installations and experiences sort of immersive experiences Mm. yeah yeah, I mean, I think Bay Magic in 2017, an exhibition you did at Kalashnikov Gallery, is a, a good example of that because it existed, well, it exists online as a project and it was a physical manifestation of the project. Can you talk a little bit about this project in particular and how the online and physical spaces work together and, and what we would see in the Bay Magic exhibition? So Bay Magic initially came about, it was a residency that I did in 2017, a month-long residency that I did with Extemporary. It's an online residency. And for a month, I worked with the phases of the moon in terms of the energy that the moon puts out at specific phases and aligned the spells and sort of chants and altars that I set up with those phases of the moon. And the premise behind it was sort of summoning love through a digital space or summoning connection through a digital space. So things like clearing out and smudging was all done digitally. So like it was setting up playlists, deleting contacts, deleting messages, sort of digital detoxing. And every week or every like phase of the moon, there would be there would be different acts that would be performed online on a website. Each phase would have a different page that you could access that was live for that week or for that phase of the moon. And you could go and experience um, the spells, the chants, and the engagement with that within a very digital context. And then I exhibited at Kalashnikov, I think it was a couple months later, a physical manifestation of this residency that I had done. And in the exhibition, in the installation, there were these instances where I had replicated parts of the residency. So there was an altar to broken hearts and broken phones, which had been quite a recurring motif and like visual within the residency. And that was sort of at the on the right, sort of at the front of the room. And there were all these love stories on the sides, which were emoji love stories. And there were screens on the wall, on the two walls with various gifts that I had done, animations that I had done in the residency and some light boxes. And there was a soundtrack and there was also a unique Wi-Fi network in the space. The walls were painted, the front wall was painted dark black and the lights were pink. So there was this sort of light immersion as well as you walked in. So it was quite a sort of a experiential, meditative experience. As you've just said, you know, your work is, and recently outside of Bay Magic still is, very much about very personal topics, dealing with love, romance, online dating, relationships. Yet it's so universal. Tell me a little bit about how people responded to this project and how they connected to it. Those are all absolutely universal experiences and 
you know, themes on some level or another, you know, the individual versus the collective experience of connecting online and or finding love and falling in love. There was a there was a lot of referencing to my own experiences and to friends and just general sentiments that I had observed and noticed in different people that I know. But people were appreciative in a way and responded with such warmth and like not camaraderie, but they were almost so grateful that someone had articulated these things. And mm. so many people were like, oh my God, I've totally felt like that. Or like the one of the text pieces says, Facebook thinks we're still friends. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone has had that experience, whether it's a friend or an ex-partner where, you know, Facebook says you're still friends, but you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was there was a lot of like conversing and sharing of experiences and stories throughout the time that the exhibition was up and subsequently people have have said to me how much it resonated with them and their own experience and i think that's what people potentially i appreciate is that identification that they can have on a personal level that someone else has made of their experience and just that connection mm. and that was it was very rewarding to know that so you, I mean, you had that solo exhibition, Bay Magic, and you've done a lot. You've participated in a lot of exhibitions, solo, group. You've gone overseas to do conferences, to participate in exhibitions. I'm very proud. <laughs> and But I want to know what your greatest, proudest moment in your art career so far is. Oh, sure. It's so hard because you always think of the most recent thing, Yeah, I think. Can I, can I say three things? Of course, you can say as many <laughs> as you want. So the first one that came to mind actually was is the Bay Magic one because that was like, it was where I finally felt like I was growing into myself as an artist and where I was brave. And I think yeah. the bravery that's so hard sometimes to like harness and, and push through. So there was that. And then the Floating Reverie catalog or book that Daniel Rautenbach designed and that the Kritzinger edited and had some amazing contributors. And when I look back at having done that, I'm just like, oh my God, did you, you did not know what you were doing getting into that mm -hmm. and proposing to, which was also funded by the NAC. So thank you very much, NAC. <laughs> As was this <laughs> podcast for last year. <laughs> yeah. Like that was just, and, have, and holding that in my hand is, was just like the most magical thing yeah, it is the most magical thing. And then another sort of career highlight was, I think it was the first fresh produce at Turbine Art Fair. Yeah. I made an artwork called Carbon City, which was an interactive LED sculpture that used carbon monoxide emissions in the air to light up the different layers of LEDs. Wow. And the layers of LEDs were in the shape of a root that I had been taking repeatedly because at the time I was freelancing and I was like moving between different places and part-time lecturing and whatever. And it was a route that I'd been traveling for like a couple weeks repeatedly. And that artwork was also like a, a defining moment because there was a lot of potential and I knew what I could do and what my skills could enable me to do. I really love how all three of your examples are things that you've accomplished in yourself 
like you know when I ask this question I often people often answer or, or or I would often answer you know something from the outside an external validation like I'm thinking of all your external validation moments like when you were invited to all expenses paid to Germany to be part of an <laughs> exhibition and created that beautiful installation called Digi Love Digi Love like for me that stands out as like a really big moment and you know when you've been flown to South Korea to present at a conference like you know you've done so many of those things but I really appreciate that your your proudest moments are stuff that you've validated in yourself mm. I think that's mm. that's a really cool way of seeing your your successes yeah I mean those things are definitely great and I'm not like taking away from them but the LED sculpture for example like the sheer agony of soldering I think they were like 400 or 500 LEDs on that thing and I'd like kind of got halfway and I was was like no turning back I like had to carry on and then getting the code to work and there was also like a visualization with it you know I think that was like the first iteration was actually a turbine out there and I think it then it grew and became this really beautiful thing and the bay magic was just it was also like a culmination of so much Mm. that I had been going through and that my friends had been going through at the time. And I think, you know, it's often this like output that you need to like get something out of you. Yeah. Did you feel vulnerable for that exhibition? With Bay Magic? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you used the word brave. I think, yeah, I think definitely. I think... I did feel vulnerable because I knew a lot of what I was putting out there was very personal, but I also knew that I wasn't alone, Mm. that the people who were going to see it would have experienced it on some level. And and it wasn't just my narrative. Yeah. It wasn't just like Carly Whitaker. It was, it was, it was a collective sentiment that was, but yeah, I did, it was, I did feel vulnerable. I think you always feel vulnerable. There's always like a part of you that's being exposed. And especially I think in the way in which I construct my artworks where the narratives are so, like the works are often so reliant on the, the narrative within it to, for it to exist. Mm. Carly, what keeps you motivated? To make work. To make work, to mm. keep on doing research, to curate, to run Floating Reverie, to do all the things. To do all the things. All the things. What keeps me motivated? I don't know. And what what keeps me motivated? You. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> and very true. <laughs> you must keep that in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I don't know. What motivates me is that it's the joy that you get from making or or producing, like the research. There's something so satisfying about coming up with different ideas and different thoughts based on what you've read and like bringing that all together and like writing something really like coherent and beautiful and knowing that it could, that someone else could use it. Like Mm. knowing that someone else could relate to it with an artwork that, you know, that someone else might identify with it. And sometimes it's about expelling this, like a thought or an idea. I, I don't know. I don't know, actually, if that, I'm, if I'm really answering no, what I, I definitely think motivated. That's what I was thinking you would answer based on, you know, your examples of your proudest moments. And it's the seeing, the seeing like the fruit of your labor. 
yeah you know yeah. Like seeing the moment that it comes yeah. into being whether it's a piece of writing or an artwork mm. but there's something also really magical and I, I this is what I had with Bay Magic where I could see it in my head from the beginning mm. and it was about like getting that made getting that done final question what are you working on now I mean we did speak a little bit about this at the beginning but yeah, what are you working on now? What are you working on moving forward? And how do you think coronavirus will impact the way you make art going forward? So at the moment, I'm working on my PhD, which is primarily researching curatorial trends in the digital space, focusing on floating reverie and other project spaces and looking at how they facilitate a very unique practice in their, method, their curatorial methodology. And then I'm not really actually working on anything else. That's, that's pretty big. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like it writing is pretty a PhD big. is pretty big. <laughs> and yeah. you're doing your PhD where? At the University of Reading in the UK. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone else does. Yeah. You're so talented. You're studying overseas. <laughs> uh, sounds fancier than it is. Yeah, I think coronavirus is going to impact me and my work. I mean, I don't know how it couldn't not. Mm. I think it's the consequences of it rather than it itself and the way of working. I don't think coronavirus or the consequences of it and this sort of new world or new way of working, which so many people are speaking about, is necessarily going to impact my work or my way of working. But what I think it will do is I think, and it has certainly done, is bring to light for those who weren't aware of like the glory of making work online and making work exist online. Mm. And I just hope that there is a nuanced appreciation for the space that it will emerge as a result of this. Thank you so much, Kylie, for your insights into the digital art landscape. I think there are a lot of people that aren't that familiar with it. So I, I think this is going to be a really interesting episode for a lot of people and so interested in hearing about your work. And I mean, from a different perspective, because I know about it so intimately but yeah, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Anne. And thanks so much for having me. I think it's such a privilege to be able to be one of your interviewees. Obviously, you know so much about me. And I think this is such an amazing podcast and you're doing such great things. So well done. Neither of us are biased in any way. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, thank um, you, Carl. Yeah. Pleasure. Bye. Pleasure. Bye. Thank you so very much to Carly and to you, the listeners, for joining me today. Please follow Unframed on Facebook and Instagram, and be sure to share this episode with your networks and encourage them to follow Unframed too. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to rate and review us as it will help to get us more followers. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. Bye.